The title of my sermon this morning is Holy God, Holy Other. H-O-L-Y, Holy, W-H-O-L-L, Holy. By Holy God, Holy, I mean sacred. The word holy means sacred. The word holy means set apart. The The word holy means different. It's separate. If something is holy, it, it, it's set apart. It's not like the other stuff. It's, it's sacred. God is holy. He's set apart. He's separate. There's nothing like Him. He's sacred. He's, he's, in, he's, he's literally in a species of His own. We're all members of a species, right? We're all humans. There's animals, plants, humans. There's lots of different species that, 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 that things belong to. God is unto His own. There's, there's nothing else in the category of God. He's, he's holy. He's separate. He's unique. He's, he's one of a kind. He's sacred. W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's holy other. That, that is to say, that is to say, His entirety. There, there's, nothing, there's nothing about Him that sort of, you know, can, can compare in any way to anything else. Of course, there are what we call communicable attributes of God where we can say, well, God is love and humans can love. And, you know, there, there are things that we can say are sort of like, and yet, at the same extent, it's just, there's just, He's ho- wholly different. He's wholly other. Uh, one of the things that sets Him apart, of course, is that He's triune. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. You're never going to be walking down the street and bump into someone like that. You know, like, oh, you know, today I met someone who's uh, one being in three persons. I, I mean, that's crazy because that's just like the God I worship. You're never going to run into someone who, is, who, who compares to him. He's, he's, just ta- he's in a league of his own. The Bible that reveals this God screams to us about this. Jeremiah 10.6 says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your, your name... Your name as well is, is great in might. In fact, God's name in Scripture is, is said to be holy itself. Even His, his name is, is just different. It's, it's one of a kind. And in fact, it's a sin to take His name in vain. You see, everything about Him, His, his name, His character, His, his existence, all of it, there's, he's, just, he's holy God, He's holy other. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you nor is there any rock like our God. 1 Chronicles 17.20, O Lord, there is none like You. Deuteronomy 33.26, there is none like the God who rides on the heavens. Exodus chapter 8, verse 10, there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus chapter 9, verse 14, there is no one like Me in all the earth. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 23, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22, You are great, O Lord, there is no one like you. There is no God besides you. Psalms 86, verse 8, O Lord, there, are, there, there is no works like yours. Like Even what you do is just totally different. You, you, the way you operate is totally different. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9, God speaking in the first person, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I mean, there's just no, there's no one like him. He's not being vain. He's, he's not being vain. 
He's, he's just stating the fact. There's no one like him. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 7, there is none like you. We could be here all day with me giving you verses about how he's unique and he's one of a kind. This morning I want to take you into the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you would open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Ecclesiastes. We begin with this concept of the uniqueness of God. He's holy God, he's holy other. And now we're going to step into the book of Ecclesiastes where we will hear, we will hear about approaching him. When you're approaching someone who is like him, this holy Father, Son, and Spirit, how, how are we to approach someone who's, who's so holy? In, the ancient, in ancient Israel, in Hebrew, this book wasn't called Ecclesiastes. It was actually called Kohelet. The word Kohelet means a preacher. Uh, it literally means a speaker of an assembly, Kohelet. You, you have written on your outline just some opening uh, things there in terms of the title and the author and the date and the purpose to give you some background. And today as we get into this ancient text of the Kohelet, as we listen to the preacher, we are going to hear him teach us about what it is to worship a God who is a holy God and holy other. The Kohelet is historically uh, tied to the great King Solomon. If you look at the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, we read the words of the Kohelet, the preacher, the son of David, David, the king in Jerusalem. You look at verse 12, we read again of the king over Israel in Jerusalem. This is historically tied to the figure of Solomon, who is the son of David. I want to I show you something in terms of the historicity of this book. I always think that this is important for us to realize because as believers living in times such as these, uh, people will think that we're crazy for reading this book and believing this book and trusting this book. I, I often have friends and hear folks say, how can you, I mean, you're a smart person, how can you trust the Bible? Don't you know that the Bible has been changed and, and, and people changed it and changed it and, and Constantine and King James and this and that and they changed it and I, I saw this movie with Tom Hanks in it, Dan Brown and the Holy Grail and, you know, I'm telling you there was this YouTube thing, I'm telling you, you got to see it, you got to know, I'm telling you this book, you can't trust it. I don't know, you know, and, and you know, there's always, there's always something. But I want to show you something. This is a fragment of Kohelet. This fragment comes from a collection of scrolls known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Specifically, this comes from Cave 4 in Qumran of the Dead Sea Scroll discovery. Until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest copies of the biblical books that we have from the ancient uh, days, from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, Prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, our, our oldest copies of the Hebrew Bible were circa 900 A.D. And so skeptics would say, how, how can you trust the Bible? I mean, you know, the Old Testament stuff, that's, that's, you know, that's way before 900 A.D. And your earliest copies only go to 900 A.D. Well, I tell you what, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, those are a thousand years removed from those 900 A.D. Old Testament texts, that, manuscripts that we have copies of. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. They verified the reliability of the book that is in front of you, the book of Ecclesiastes, and in fact, your, your entire Hebrew Bible in front of you. The Dead Sea Scrolls are these uh, collection of ancient documents that were discovered in a cave in Israel, uh, and they date back, back 2,000 years plus. Uh, these scrolls contain uh, Old Testament books. They also contain extra-biblical writings and 
all sorts of other archaeological stuff. They're absolutely fantastic. Now, uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, as I said, the earliest existing manuscript of the Old Testament that we had is 900 A.D. It's referred to as the Masoretic Texts. Mind you, we also had what's known as the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was done around 250 B.C., so we also have that. So you've got the Masoretic Text, 900 A.D., you've got the Septuagint, 200 or so B.C., and you can look and you can compare those. And now, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have stuff that goes back 200 years before Christ. A comparison between these manuscripts reveals an incredible accuracy of the transmission of the copying. So much so that the critics, at least the educated ones who are honest with themselves, uh, have to do away with this whole idea. Oh, it's been translated and it's been copied and scribes and it's been changed. That's just not the case. We can take copies of Ecclesiastes that are thousands of years, that are a thousand years removed from one another, and you can read them and you can see it says the same thing. So here we are. Here we are with Kohelet, the preacher. Here we are with a text that is reliable. Here we are with a text that is historical. Even more for us, here we are with a text that is given to us by revelation of the holy God who is holy other. And as we come to the text and we listen to Kohelet Solomon, we are going to look at some things that he has to say this morning, and we can take it to the bank. We can trust this text. We are going to listen to Kohelet this morning in the fifth chapter. So if you turn to Ecclesiastes 5, and Kohelet is going to talk to us about worshiping God, specifically a God who's holy. The word worship, by the way, is a word that means to ascribe worth. And it's worship, it's ascribing worth or value to something. When you go to a store and you're shopping, we have price tags on things. Price tags ascribe value. That, that, that's what worship is. You're ascribing value. You're saying, this means this much to me. And now we're talking about worshiping a God. He is the object of our worship. We come to ascribe value to Him as we gather here today. We sit before His Word. We sing praises to Him. We offer prayer to Him. We fellowship. We give. Now, the Bible does not consider the worship of God to be an easy task. Furthermore, the Bible doesn't consider the worship of God to be um, a, a, a sort of something you do once a week sort of a thing. The worship of God is a constant thing. It is not a matter of, of doing alone as well. It is a matter of, of actually our being. So worship isn't just something that we do. Uh, worship isn't something we do once. It's a constant thing, but it's not just something we do. It's a matter of our being. It should flow from our being. Fish breathe underwater. The, the doing of breathing underwater is the direct result of being a fish. Fish breathe underwater. So too, Christians have been born again by the Spirit of God, given a new nature, a new being, and that should flow into worship. Just as a fish who stops breathing would die, so too the Christian who is not worshiping is dead, lifeless. In the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes, we're going to read about worship. Specifically, we're going to read about how we are to approach God in worship. Think about that. Think about that for a second. Approaching God. The holy God who is holy other. Approaching Him. Have you ever, like, ran into royalty or, you know, ran into someone who's like a star or whatever? We're in L.A. and you see someone who's important and you kind of, whoa, you know, and you, 
He's like, should I say hi? Should I try to get an autograph? Should I, or, you know, I'm not one of those guys. Should I take a selfie? You know, you, you run into someone who's important. You, you kind of put some thought into, right, like, how, how, how will I approach them? How, how should we approach God? Should we approach Him like a friend? What up, God? What's what up, God? Pound? You know, is that how we should approach God? Should we approach Him like a boss? Sir, do you have time? Do you have time for me? Do, can, I, can, I come, can I come in? Should we approach him like a buddy, a boss? Should we approach him like a lover? Hey, God. You know, uh, it's kind of creepy. Um, well, how, how, like, how do you approach the Holy God who's holy other? So it's a good question to think about. It's a question this text is going to answer. So we won't be left in the dark with regards to how we are to approach him. If we were to begin at the start of the book in chapter 1, Kohelet has already talked about approaching God, and he's talked about God. And in the third chapter, he talks about God being in heaven as a ruler. And he talks about, in verses 16 through 22, God being this judge. So God is, is, is holy other. He's, he's far off. He's out of reach. He's a ruler. He's a judge. And now Kohelet places God in the fifth chapter much closer. We will still say that God is in heaven, but God is going to show up on earth and people are going to be able to, 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 to approach Him. Where will they approach Him? Well, of course, they'll approach Him here. Look up here, they'll approach Him in the temple. Solomon built the temple. If you know your Hebrew Bible, he built the temple. The temple was the permanent tabernacle where God actually manifested Himself among the people. The temple is this ancient place where the people of God went to worship. The temple was this physical building that God sanctified and God blessed. And this building is like a porthole from the heavens to the earth. It's like Super Mario, those green portals, and He goes down and there's you know uh, dragons and stuff down. It's a porthole to another world. To the heavens. The heavens and the earth meet in Solomon's temple. God actually manifests Himself there in what we call a theophanic appearance. Now, of course, we know that God is not physical. God is spirit. God doesn't have a physical body like us. He's not the kind of a being that can be parted. He doesn't have limbs and eyes and these sorts of things, right? He's, he's spirit. He's immaterial. But He manifests Himself in a visible way in the temple. Now, to manifest is to appear in some sort of a physical or tangible manner so that, you know, physical beings like you and I can, can experience and can see what otherwise we wouldn't be able to see. So he's literally appearing there. The, the, the temple is said to be his house. He calls it his house. It's his dwelling place. I, I, you know, you, you know where you live, you know your address, and your friends might drive by the house and say, that, 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 that's where Bob lives right there. Well, if you are in Jerusalem and you walk by the temple, you could say, that, that, that's God's house, that's his address. He lives, he lives literally in there. The holy God who's holy other, who's so separate and so above and so, so but he, he comes and he's, he's there, and his people are have their lives all around there, their villages, their cities, and everything, and their lives are built around coming to God's house to approach Him and to worship Him. God has condescended. He's left His, his throne to come 
and live among fallen humans so, so, so that they can know His love and they can get to know Him and meet Him and He's there. It's a place like no other on the earth, Solomon's temple. It's no wonder it's one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so now, now as we uh, are getting into things, I'm giving you some first concepts that will help us to get into the fifth chapter. We are thinking about the temple in Jerusalem. And I am sermonically using this text and this temple in Jerusalem to talk about our worship of God. That said, I need to note in terms of upfront things that biblically there is a difference between Solomon's temple where God has these theophanic appearances and the temple that is today. After the time of Christ, we no, long, no longer need such a temple as this because God has created a new temple. Those of you who know your New Testament well, you know what, what is the new temple. Go ahead. What's the new temple? It's us. It's the church of Jesus Christ. The, the new theophanic appearance in this age of God is among His people. There's not a person in the room who's a believer in Christ who became a believer in Christ by any other means than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates us and brings us faith and repentance. And so we are indwelled with the Spirit, the same Spirit of God that manifested in the Holy of Holies in that temple now manifests Himself in us. And the physical appearance then of the temple in this age, the theophany is actually us, which is mind-blowing. The, 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 the temple has turned into a new tabernacle, which is the church of Jesus Christ. Believers are not bricks like the temple in Jerusalem. We're this spiritual body that God animates by His Spirit. It's, 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 it's mind-blowing that He would do that, that we get to experience Him in this way. And so as we look at the temple in that old era, in that former dispensation, we have to keep in mind contextually that we today are the temple, but we're reading about that old temple. So there's some overlap. There's some distinction. Okay, now that sets us up. We've got the first concepts in mind about the holy God who's holy other, about His manifestation in the temple, about Kohelet, Solomon, about the parallel to us as the temple today. And now let's get into the text of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Draw your eyes at verse 1, please. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. How are we supposed to go to the temple, Kohelet? Oh, be careful. Guard your steps. This leads to the first point of the fifth chapter. Kohelet wants you to guard your motivation. The word guard comes from the Hebrew word shamar. It means to give heed. The word steps is the Hebrew word regel, which means of feet. So it literally says give, give heed to your feet. Idiomatically, we'd say watch your steps. Watch your steps. Or perhaps, you know, as my, my dad used to say when we were in trouble... You're walking on thin ice. Walking on thin ice is a powerful picture. The ancients of Jerusalem uh, have, there's, there's snow in the north on top of the mountain. They, they might understand that idiom as well. Walking on thin ice is a dangerous place to be. How do you walk on thin ice? You do it slowly. You watch every step with great caution. 
How do you walk through uh, my kid's bedroom with great caution? There's Legos everywhere. You're going to hurt yourself. How do you approach God with great caution? Like thin ice. Deliberate yet cautious. Be wary, be wary how you breathe. Be quiet, don't yell, no fast moves, be careful. Why? Because he's holy God and holy other, that's why. This is so countercultural to us. The, the gods of our culture, the figment of our own imagination gods that we like to think of, they, 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 they just want us to run up in there. They just, they'll let you do whatever you want, you see. It's, it's, it's no wonder that in our culture everyone gets a participation ribbon, everyone gets a trophy, everyone's a winner. Uh, we don't keep score, you know, you know, everyone wins. It's like, nah, I mean the dads are keeping score, but whatever, right? Uh, we create gods that are products of our culture. We want gods that just let us do whatever. Uh, but the God who is and the God that humans want are not the same and the God who is is revealing Himself in the text and it says, you guard your steps when you come to my house. Why, God? Because it's my house. It's my house. The temple was designed to be a place to teach people about God, their unique relationship to Him and, and how to approach Him. How, 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 he was approached by a process, actually, of cleansing. When you came to the ancient temple, you, you actually go through rituals so that you approach him rightly. There were ceremonial washings, mikvaot, where you'd wash yourself, acknowledging like, I'm, I'm not clean. I need to ceremonially like wash myself as I, I, I approach him. So there's, there's a process. You don't just run up in there. You don't just run up in there like it's some kind of a theme park, right? There's a process involved, right? When, when, when I was a kid, uh, we, you know, my, 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 my old man didn't let us just open up the refrigerator. You know, you had to, you had to ask. Can, Dad, can I? Yeah, you had to ask. And you wouldn't dare go in somebody else's house and open up the refrigerator looking for some, some Capri Suns or some Squeeze-Its or whatever. No, you, you don't do that because it's, it's, it's someone else's house as a matter of respect. Suffice it to say, approaching the temple was an experience and it was a lesson in theology. You're being taught about this God as you approach his house. And here we see that worship was to begin with careful footing, careful attention to how you enter the place. Guard your steps, look at verse 1, as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know what they are doing. You come and you approach him Guarding your motivations. Your motivation ought to be to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. We draw near to listen. One English translation that's a little more fluid here, the Living Bible translates this verse, as you enter the temple, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Imagine the ushers... Uh, Imagine the ushers. I saw, I saw Steve out there passing out, passing out sermon outlines this morning. Imagine you come in and Steve's out there by the coffee or whatever and he shakes your hand and gives you a sermon outline or whatever and he says, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Shut your face as you enter. <laughs> you go, Steve? What? 
you need some more coffee, you know? Where's the camera? Get that coffee going. What's it? Shut your face as you enter. Yeah. That's what Kohelet says. He says, shut your face. Be ready to listen. This could be in reference to listening to the oracles of the prophets in the temple, uh, the teachings of the rabbis in the temple courts, or perhaps to the teachers of the law who were around the temple. There were psalms of ascent that you read too as you approached the temple. You would read God's Word as you're approaching the temple. So this could be like, hey, 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 shh, listen to, listen to the Word of God as you're, as you're coming. Uh, it could be a different kind of a listening. In the Hebrew Bible, the idea of listening also is uh, idiomatic for obedience. O- obey Him. Another thing that isn't popular in our culture. We don't like gods that ask us to obey. We don't like anyone who asks us to obey. We don't like people telling us what to do. I mean, this is America. You know, we, we're just all about that life. And I love that about our country. But if we don't separate our nationalism for our spirituality, you're going to get yourself in trouble because God isn't about all that, all, all that individual, rugged, you know, I do my own thing. You can't tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah he can. He's God. To listen is to obey. It's not so much the physical hearing, but it is a, it is a passionate devotion to say, Lord, I'm, I'll do what you say of me. It is not the ears affixed to my big head. It is the picking up of, of sound waves from God in obedience in my heart. It's listening in my heart, in my soul. It's an active trust of obedience. Lord, Lord, whatever, whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever you have of me, Lord, as I approach Him, that's to be my disposition. What, whatever you have of me, that's how Shema is used in the Hebrew Bible. It's obedience. We draw near to obey rather than to just offer sacrifices. That is to say, we come to be right. We come to, to, to be made right, not merely to perform ritual. The motivation is that we need His righteousness, not ritual for ritual's sake, Ritual is, is beautiful. Ritual is beautiful. We have all kinds of rituals in our culture. R- r- ritual, tradition is very beautiful when, it, when it's done with the right heart, of course. Yet, ritual is sheer and utter wickedness when it is done with hypocrisy and hiding. Notice how we are told to listen and how it is contrasted with those who offer the sacrifice of... What does it say? Fools. What does it say about those who offer the sacrifice of fools? It says what? That they don't know what? They don't, they don't know that they're doing evil. Here we see a key word, la'asa'ot, those who do evil, those who listen uh, to do good, uh, they obey. What exactly, though, is the evil doing? Kohelet says that it's the sacrifice of fools. Kohelet says that we should guard our steps, we should guard our motives so we don't make the sacrifice of fools. At the temple, sacrifices are made. Parts of the ritual, the ceremonial cleansing, right? And there's, there's also an offering of sacrifices. You give grain, you give, you, give, uh, you know, animals are sacrificed there. Um, you, you know, in our culture, we're like, uh, animal, I sacrifice animals, that's weird. Oh, look, we sacrifice animals in our culture. I mean, every time you eat, right? Every time you eat, that's, that, you, you know, an animal's given its life. That's a sacrifice in, in order for you to enjoy that delicious burger or whatever you're eating, right? We, to, to sacrifice is to give of, of something, right? 
So at the very basic level in the temple, you would give of something that's of, of value. Animals are of value. They're, they're living things, grain, other things that you give. They're of value. To give a sacrifice is to take something that you otherwise would enjoy for yourself and to give it unto God as an act of worship. Uh, again, worship is ascribing value. So when I take something that I would otherwise enjoy for myself, this delicious lamb, and I offer it as a sacrifice unto him, I'm foregoing what I otherwise would have enjoyed, and, and I'm saying, here. So too, financially, when we get financially in worship, you know, th- th- I would enjoy this, but I would like to use this money. Uh, my children certainly would. Dad, can, can, can I have, can I have, can I have, right? They, they always want me to sacrifice, right? We sacrifice for, and you love them, so you sacrifice for them. The sacrifice is, 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 is a basic thing. And so as we come to God, that's what we do. We say, I otherwise would spend this on me, but I'm giving it unto you. But there's a way that you can do that that is foolish. As we'll see, the fool is one who comes in the text with empty promises. In this context, the fool is one who comes to the temple and when he worships, he, he starts saying things that he doesn't mean. Kohelet warns his audience not to fall into this trap. Don't come to God with empty words. Don't approach God with mixed motives. 1 Samuel, let me put this in front of you. 15, 22, this is a good cross-reference to write down. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's kind of scary that the fool here in the text is described as sinning without knowing it. Did you catch that? It says, for they do not know that they are doing evil. That's scary. It's, a, a, it's like a subconscious thing. The NEB English translation says that, that, that they are those who, quote, who sin without a thought. It's as though it's second nature. They sin without blinking. That's a scary place to be. When you've done something so wrong and for so long that you don't even realize that you're wrong. It's even more sad that it's in the context of worship. These are the people who are going to worship. They're making the pilgrimage to go to the temple to worship and they're sinning while they're going. We tend to think uh, that it's the people who didn't come to church on Sunday that are sinning. You know, those people, they don't come to church. They don't place a value on church. You know, we tend to think it's the couch potatoes who ditch church for other re- reasons. You know, those, those people who don't come to church, they're the ones who are sinning, not the ones who are here. Kohelet says it's the ones who are there. The ones who are coming, the ones who are there, those are the ones that have the issue. Because they have approached the holy God who is holy other as though he's just like everything else. And there's the scandal. So the text is telling us about how to approach God. It tells us to guard our motivations. Secondly, it tells us to guard our mouth. Look at verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Emphasis in verse 2 is on uh, rashness or haste. The idea is that we don't rattle off a list and then we scratch it off our list. We don't Come to the place of worship with a time card. Do you, you remember time cards? Uh, you know, you check in, you check out, right? I, I, I attended a Bible college as an undergraduate, and we had to do chapels as part of our requirements as students. And so you'd have to, you'd have to check in and check out to get credit for it. You know, that, that, that's not what 
worship is. You know, I, I checked the list. I was there, you see. We don't come to the place of worship with a time card. We don't run in and approach God with hasty words or impulsiveness. We don't bring up a bunch of stuff intending uh, to change and then take it off as though we have, you know, we, 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 we've fulfilled our religious requirements, you see. Notice the emphasis is on words. Watch your words. Use them wisely. You're in the house of God. You're in the presence of God. Don't be preoccupied with yourself. I so often come to, to pray. I, I often come to worship, I confess. And I have my own agenda. I have my own expectations. I have my own thoughts about how things are going to go down. The idea is, as the last verse says, you draw near to listen. You lay your agenda aside. You let your words be few. It reminds me of Jesus when he warned against idle babblers who pray long, repetitive, droning prayers in the public just to be seen. That's Matthew 6, verse 5 through 7. Those who listen are contrasted with those who do not listen. Those who do not are just going through the motions. And when you go through the motions, here's what you're going to do. You're going to say things that you don't mean when you're going through the motions. You're going to say things that you really don't intend to actually follow up on. Think about in church on a Sunday, right? Like the words of the songs, they come up here. And, and, and if you're not careful, you could just be following the words. You can be following the words. Or as my kids, they're sometimes too cool to sing, so I have to say, hey, hey, the words are up there. You can read them, sing, right? But if you're not careful, you, you can be saying things that you don't mean. Right? You, you could be actually entering into dangerous territory in the house of God saying things that you don't mean. Kohelet says, don't be hasty with your words or impulsive with your thoughts when you come to worship. We sing without meaning when we're just going through the motions. Be, be careful with this. The wisdom literature of the Bible constantly affirms the idea of being slow to speak and quick to listen. Oh, many marriages would be saved if we did that, right? Many parent-child relationships would be saved if we did that. We, we, we only listen so that we can come back with retort of five reasons why what you just said is dumb, right? We're not listening. We're tearing each other apart when we argue and we divide. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 3 says, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin you know, silence before God is a key in our worship. This morning, before we began the sermon, we had a moment of silence. Silence is the ultimate expression of God's transcendence. He's beyond me. I'm, I'm speechless before Him. Notice that Kohelet says, For God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. He's, he's, ho he's holy other. We know that the temple, right, is this unique place. It's this porthole, as I said. The heavens and the earth are coming together. The temple is very unique. Uh, locating God in heaven and man on earth, though, is to caution against arrogance and flippancy. Silence is an expression of humility. I have come to obey. I've come to listen. It's hard to be silent. We live in a noisy world. I have, I have seven children. There's always noise in our house. Even when they're asleep, there's noise in the house. You can hear the snores. There's always sounds in the house. My, my wife poor thing. She really likes it to be quiet. I wasn't raised with quiet. I always have something on. 
In fact, I will be listening to music and playing a podcast while I'm working because I just, I, I don't know, silence, I, I don't know. It makes me anxious, depressed. Just let's turn on stuff, you know. When I'm home, I just turn on stuff. I grew up falling asleep in front of the TV. I just always noise. My poor wife, she likes it to be quiet. When we got married, you know, one of the things that I, I liked to do uh, at that point, I wouldn't fall asleep in front of the TV. I, I liked falling asleep listening to sermons. I said, can, can we listen to something? She's like, I won't fall asleep if you have something playing. It's good to be quiet. Silence can be uh, uh, discomforting. We can have things on because we're masking anxieties or other things that we have going on. But silence, silence is important. In our culture, though, silence isn't something that we have time for. Noise has become necessity. And you know what noise does? It deafens us. It deafens us from hearing the subtle ways that the Lord is speaking and trying to get our attention. Let's continue in the text, verse 3. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. It's a very interesting, powerful line. Let me explain this. It's a, it's, it literally says that, that much work leads to dreams, and foolishness leads to many words. Uh, think, think about the first part of this. The dream comes through much work, much effort. You know when you've had a hard day at work and you're all stressed out? You're all stressed out, you've got a bunch of stuff on, on your mind, and typically when you've had a day like that, you are going to go to sleep and you're going to have heavy dreams. You are going to have heavy dreams. And if, and if you don't, you're lucky. You're just one of those weird lucky people. I've, I had some friends who were like, I don't have dreams. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Okay, if you have a bad day, typically you're going to have heavy dreams. That's the principle. So the analogy is that just as a whole lot of work gives you crazy dreams, so too you who are foolish are going to have many words. Overproduction is the problem in both cases. Too much work gives dreams and too much talking gives you a fool. I like the way the Living Bible uh, has translated it. And I often don't say that of the Living Bible because it's quite uh, paraphrasy and not as literal as I like. But it renders this here, and I quote, Just as being too busy gives you nightmares, so being a fool gives you a blabbermouth. See the contrast in the verse? We are to listen. We are to listen, but the fool is hasty with his words. And you can't listen when you're talking. So here the fool is said to have many words. Many words, many words. You know, I think of the many filler words that, you know, we use sometimes in, in, in worship and in prayer. We often have, you know, more words than is necessary. We just add a whole bunch of filler words. He's challenging us to be thoughtful in our worship of God. Really think about what we're saying when we gather in worship, when we pray, when we sing. Think about what you're saying. Look at verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. And moving through the text here and surfacing the points, he tells us to guard our motivation, guard our mouth, and guard your promises. He's talking about vows. Those are promises. Temple vows were common in worship at the temple. We read about them in the Hebrew Bible. You make vows. It's part of your sacrifices to God. This is a part of a loving relationship with anyone, really. I mean, you know, when you marry someone, you, you make vows, right? Vows are important things of relationships. So when you go and worship, there are certain vows that we make, uh, certain things that we say. You know, I, I, I come to church on Sunday, and, uh, you know, I, I, I hear God's Word being preached. I become aware of my sin, and, 
in my heart, I, I, you know, I'd say, hey, God, you know, this week, not going to do that or whatever. And, you, you know, as a part of your worship, there's, there's vows that are being made when you worship God. And the temptation is for us, if we're honest with ourselves, that we'll make vows when things aren't going our way. But then when things start going our way, we forget what we said. You know, there's a lot of, of, of atheists who turn into believers in foxholes. When things aren't going right, you start, hey God, if you'll just, if you'll just, then I'll, you know, if you will, then I'll, and then, you know, things start going fine. You forget what you said you would do. You rationalize it. You explain it away. I, I asked for this and he didn't do it, and you know, so I, I you know, I'm, I'm off the hook or whatever. I, or, or you know, you, you, you pray for healing. You ever pray for healing? And then your body starts feeling fine, and you just rationalize it like, well, you know, it's probably that Advil or I had a good night's sleep or whatever, and you don't really stop and, and say thank you. This verse is hitting at core issues of, in, of integrity in our worship. We're like, hey, don't make promises to God that you're not going to keep. There's no integrity in that. God, can you get me through this? And I'll never drink again until Friday. God, give me a better job, and I promise if you, you give me a better job, I'll donate more money. And the raise comes, and... God, on my next paycheck, I'm going to give more. God, God, you know, uh, I know we're not married and we shouldn't be doing this, but we're in love and this will be the last time until Saturday night. God, I, I know I've been, I've been doing wrong, but if you will just, then I will, I will. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, 22, 23. When you make a vow to the Lord, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it will not be sin. You shall be careful to perform what goes out of your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Jesus, he, he warned in Matthew 5, 37, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this, Jesus said, comes from the evil one. Don't you say to God that you're going to do and don't do. Now, is there a person in this room who is unscathed? Can we just be honest with ourselves? We have all said we would do things to God that we didn't do. We are all guilty of this. We are all condemned by this. And this is why we need Jesus. Because unlike us, he hasn't done that. Everything he said he would do, he has done. In fact, the message of our faith is just that, done. He paid for all of our sins. He offers you forgiveness if you ask of him. If you come to him and you turn from your sin, he'll give you that repentance. And so while we all know that we have done the very thing that Kohelet is saying, don't do, we can still approach God nonetheless because when we approach him, we are covered in the blood of the Lamb who has washed us, brothers and sisters. Let's continue in the text. It is better, verse 5, that you should not vow, that you should vow and not pay. Here we see that the vows were probably financial vows. Uh, Kohelet probably has in mind some sort of an offering. 
Practically speaking, you can imagine, uh, you know, when people make vows in the temple, I'm going to give this, I'm going to do that, that creates all sorts of problems if they don't make good on it because the priests and the workers, you know, what people vow, they use that for purposes of keeping the temple going and whatnot. So when people renege on their vows, it's going to hurt others in the community. Working in the nonprofit sector, I can understand that a bit. You know, people will say, hey, I'm going to give or do whatever, and then you're counting on that to keep certain things running. Uh, and people employed and, and, and helping people and whatnot, and then when it doesn't happen, you know, it, you go, oh man, like, what are we going to do now? So in the next verse, as you keep reading the text, we see that the temple had a collections department here. Look at verse 6. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? Some sort of a messenger would be sent to make good on the vow. The fool would say, oh, it was, uh, it, was, um, it, was, it was a mistake. I put the decimal in the wrong place, you see. How many of us would put the decimal in the wrong place? With, with giving? Sure. With vows to God? Sure. We say that we will, uh, you know, do this or that or stop doing this or that. Uh, you know, we're guilty of this. We've, we, just a moment ago, we, we acknowledge this in our need of Christ. Christ is the only one who has kept his vows. Christ is the only one who came to pay and, and made good on this. And so we're, we're, we're cautioned in these passages, but we're also on the other side of the cross where we can say, oh man, I'm so thankful for Jesus. Look at verse 7. For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. This leads us to a final point here. We've got guard your motivation, your mouth, your promises, and your posture. Here again, we see the vocabulary of verse 7 of, of verse 3, the mention of dreams. Those dreams brought on by exhaustion. Oh, they're nothing. They're, they're dreams. They're not realities. So too, the many words of the fool are nothing. They're good for nothing. Instead of approaching God flippantly, we're told to fear Him. Empty worshipers, beware. You're toying with God. This is serious business. You come to the temple. It's serious business. That's His house. I think Nadab and Abihu, who in Leviticus 10 offered unholy fire before God and died. The people in Beth Shemesh who died when they looked directly into the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 6, we read the famous line there, who can stand in the presence of this holy God? He's the holy God who's holy other. You think of how God is described in, in, in the Bible. We had a, I, I gave you a shotgun of verses in the beginning. Think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 that refers to him as a consuming fire. I don't, I don't know about you, but the way I approach a fire is much different than the way I approach a swimming pool on a hot day, right? But again, culturally, we just assume that God is like a teddy bear, right? God's got the kissing booth and he's giving out kisses to everybody. No, he's a consuming fire. He's holy God, he's holy other. And thus we are to approach him differently than we approach anyone, anything else. We're to be quiet, the text tells us. We understand that, that God, of course, is everywhere. He's, he's omnipresent, so he doesn't need to be approached because he's everywhere. We're in his presence right now. But in the context of worship, there is a sense in which entering into a sacred space like the temple, or even our gathering on a Lord's Day, is a time where we're communing with him in a unique way that isn't like the way we experience His omnipresence throughout, throughout every minute of the day. And so, when I enter a space like this, that we've entered this morning, I need to do so with a sense of fear, the text says. 
because we're dealing with God. And He's just different. He deserves me to be focused when I sing and when I pray. He, he deserves that I consider Him in, 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 in every way and I put Him first in every way. He, he, he deserves that I, that I would be locked in and that I would make good on the things that I say I'm going to do. He deserves all of that and beyond. And yet again, we acknowledge we fall short. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. So we have had some of our first concepts. We've read the fifth chapter and now some final considerations. Make good on your vows to God is a big takeaway from the text. Spend time thinking about the vows that you've made in the past to God. Seriously, take, you know, take some time today, this week or whatever, and, and just kind of you know, say, you know, God, I'm senile. I'm prone to forget things. Would you bring to mind the things that I have said I would do that I, that I haven't? Make good on the things that you say to the Lord. Commit yourself uh, when you gather in worship to singing with new passion and focus. For some of us, singing is easier than studying. For others, it's the opposite. Uh, some don't like to sing. Some don't like to study. Some don't like to pray. Some are nervous when you pray or whatever. Let's just commit to getting over all of that and saying, Lord, you're worthy of it all and help us to be thoughtful in it. These are wonderful applications of the text this morning. Let me give you three uh, quick points for consideration to jot down. Theological points for us as we contrast because the temple then is different than now. And so that's my first point that I want to leave you with by way of conclusion. Remember there's a new temple. During the beginning of the sermon, I said I'm going to be comparing worship at Solomon's temple to us, the temple of the Spirit that has been given to us, poured out Pentecost by Christ in the sending of the Spirit. We are no longer in need of Solomon's temple as a place of worship because God has created a new temple. And again, where is the new temple? It's right here. Brothers and sisters, it's right here. So by way of conclusion, let's place a premium when we gather. When, when, when we say, hey, there's evening worship. Oh, I, I don't want to miss that. Oh, there's a family meeting. Oh, I don't want to miss that. Oh, there's, there's this. Oh, I don't want to miss that. I want to place a premium on being and worshiping in the new temple. There's an experience to be had in community together. It, there's a sense in which we encounter the presence of God when we are together there's something different about what's happening right now than the rest of the week when we're, you know, with, with ourselves and what have you. Now, of course, we need to be worshiping God when we're driving our cars, when we're in our beds, when we're at work, when we're... But let us place a premium on the blessedness that we have with the new temple that Christ has given us. There is a new temple. Secondly, there is a new way. The new temple is formed through the sacrifice of the Son of God who became a man. We read in Matthew chapter 27 that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn. The Holy of Holies, where the presence of God, the porthole of the heavens to the earth in that temple, the, the thing that separated that area where the porthole was popping off was a veil. The veil separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of it because to be holy is to be separate. And so there's a veil that separates that and when Christ died, the veil ripped right open. The significance? We can now approach Him 
What was separating us from Him, our sin has been handled in Him. Praise be to God. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may have mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Ecclesiastes says, shut your mouth, watch your step. Hebrews 4 says, come on in, the water's good. In a moment, we're going to have communion and we're going to think about what Christ has done for us. It's pictured before us. The bread is a, a, is a, a picture, the little cracker is a picture of His body that's broken for us. And the little cup is a picture of his, of his blood that was poured out for us. And so, so as we hear the, the law of God saying, shut your mouth, do it right, make good on your promises, we keep coming back to Christ and going, man, praise, praise be to Him. There's a new way. There's a new temple. Lastly, God has not changed. I love that about God. I love that about Him. He doesn't change. I've been let down by family. I've been let down by friends. People who said they would be there and they weren't. We've all been let down. We've all had people change on us. Here's the thing with the holy God who's holy other. He's immutable. He doesn't change. You know, people tend to think, you know, when we're jumping from the old to the new or jumping from that temple to this temple, they tend to think, you know, did, did something about God change? No, no, nothing about God changed. Ecclesiastes 5 would still be the case. You'd still hear that, that, that stern, don't you dare come up in here like this. That would still be the case, but by the blood of the Lamb. We would still be facing the consuming fire, but instead, in His grace, He gave us what we didn't deserve. He gave us Himself who has died, who loves you, not because you were lovable, but because He chose to love you and save you and wash you and cleanse you. So the sermon is done. But the sermon now is something that we have to take and carry, not to be hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. And an appropriate response for us is to come and sing to Him. And as we sing, be mindful of the words that you're... And as you pray, be mindful of the words... Cry out to God. Of course, cry out. Vow to Him. Tell Him, yes, yes, yes. Cry out to Him. Approach Him. Come to Him. Feel His forgiveness and His love for you. But keep in mind that He's holy God and holy other. And only by His grace, only by His grace can we come to Him. Let's pray. Let's sing. Let's have communion. Now, Father, we thank You for Your love. In that while we were yet sinners, Your Son would come to rescue to die, to pardon, to pay. Lord, uh, Ecclesiastes 5 is a, is a very interesting text for us as we think of what it was to approach You in the temple. And now we think of what Your Son has accomplished so that we might approach You. That in Him, we are in You. As He is in, in the Father, so too we in Him are in You. Father, we're so thankful and Father, we confess our sins. You know them more than we do. You know the things that we've said we would do that we haven't done. The things we said we would change that we haven't. Now, Father, I pray that Your Spirit would move today to transform us, change us, 
Make us different. Make us holy like You. Your Word says that we are to be holy for You are holy. Lord, set us apart. Sanctify us. Separate us. Wash us. Cleanse us. As we come to the table this morning, we are so thankful for the work of the Gospel. As we offer these concluding songs for this worship service, Lord, we pray that the words would be true in our heart of hearts. You alone are worthy of our praise. Oh God, we are so thankful for Your Son. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.